A majority of U.S. women of childbearing age are overweight or obese. These women are likely to gain excessive weight when they're pregnant, and that, combined with other risk factors, can result in obese offspring. So, how early should obesity prevention start? I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Matthew Gilman, a professor and director of the obesity prevention program in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute. Dr. Gilman has co-authored a perspective article on early obesity prevention. Dr. Gilman, most people are well aware of the adult obesity epidemic in the United States, but what about U.S. children? How rapidly are childhood obesity rates increasing, and at what age do they become apparent? Thanks for asking. Actually, while obesity rates in children had gone up from 1980 to about the middle of the last decade, the epidemic may have actually peaked, at least in some segments of the U.S. population. We and others have shown that, especially in preschool ages, obesity rates seem to be coming down slightly in the past five to ten years. But that doesn't mean our job is done because racial, ethnic, and social disparities seem to be widening. And across the globe, obesity and its main consequence, type 2 diabetes, are really mushrooming. In fact, by 2030, the world will have over a half billion diabetics. In your article, you focus primarily on two prenatal risk factors, smoking and excessive gestational weight gain, and two risk factors in infants, lack of long-term breastfeeding and inadequate sleep duration. So first, what's your sense of the extent to which obesity can be attributed to the combination of these four factors? If we do the calculations on those four factors, we come up with estimates that 20 to 50% of childhood obesity could be prevented by avoiding these factors. That's a big impact, but I really don't know if those figures are accurate. They might be overestimated because we assume that these are causal factors and their modifiability. So what we really need to tell are intervention studies, and many of those are ongoing now. When it comes to gestational weight gain, do you believe there's a biologic effect on the fetus that promotes later obesity, or Is gestational weight gain mainly a marker for postnatal weight gain that's driven by behavioral factors? Gestational weight gain may have a biological effect because of fuels that are transmitted from the mother to the fetus during pregnancy. Again, we won't know that until we find the uh, evidence from intervention studies, many of which are going on right now. We know that about half of women gain more than recommended during pregnancy. And that figure is higher among overweight and obese women. As I said, there are many trials going on right now to tell us the best ways of moderating weight gain. One promising strategy seems to be group visits. That's a strategy that works for weight control in many non-pregnant people, too. There seems to be something about sharing experiences that's powerful in changing behavior. I presume that to prevent excessive gestational weight gain, you wouldn't recommend going back to what happened in years past, which was the prescription of stimulant diet pills. So beyond group therapy, is there any intervention you would recommend? What sort of advice do you give to pregnant women? Definitely not pills of any variety in pregnancy. Right now, there are a number of trials going on, and the interventions range from group visits to individual coaching to uh, mobile health applications. Uh, One thing that we're very interested in testing is changing the delivery system in healthcare and using providers, obstetricians and midwives, and electronic medical record systems to try to affect uh, weight gain change. 
You note in your article that women seem particularly willing to modify their behavior during pregnancy, but of course some behaviors are harder to modify than others. What kind of evidence do we have about the likelihood, for instance, of smoking cessation during pregnancy? Avoiding smoking during pregnancy is important for many reasons, not just for the fact that it might be associated with offspring obesity. And the good news is that most women who are smoking before pregnancy stop before they get pregnant, or at least when they learn they're pregnant. On the other hand, some women don't stop and continue to smoke during pregnancy. They tend to be fairly resistant to quitting further along during pregnancy, and some who do stop when pregnant actually take up smoking again when the baby is born. You cite a study suggesting that the optimal duration of breastfeeding is 12 months. How realistic do you think that is for most mothers, given the many obstacles, especially for women who work outside the home? The American Academy of Pediatrics and other organizations recommend continuing to breastfeed for at least 12 months. As you say, that's a hard thing for many women to keep up, especially if they're working outside the home. Nevertheless, you know, some mother-baby pairs find nursing just a few times a day to be satisfying, and some moms pump breast milk and feed it to their babies in a bottle. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention publishes a state-by-state breastfeeding scorecard And it's clear from those scorecards that public policies could be quite a bit better in terms of promoting breastfeeding in public and in workplaces. That study also indicated that sleeping for less than 12 hours per day during infancy was a risk factor for obesity. Do we know what proportion of U.S. infants get that much sleep regularly and how much of that is in the parents' control? The right amount of sleep varies from one child to the next. Uh, We do know that sleep duration has gone down over the decades, even among infants. And while it's true that some infants are just better sleepers than others, parents do have some influence. Pilot studies show that things like rocking your baby almost but not fully to sleep before putting him or her in the crib, not providing a bottle for a sleep, a quiet, screen-free room, and a routine bedtime can all help. What other risk factors come into play in infancy or early childhood, and how can they be controlled? So just these past two weeks at international meetings, we highlighted additional pre- and postnatal risk factors for obesity, in addition to the four we discussed just a few minutes ago. And these include sugary beverage intake in pregnancy, gestational diabetes, cesarean delivery, afterbirth rapid weight gain in the first months of life, and early introduction of solid foods before four months of age. When we add these together, we see the increase in propensity for the growing child to gain extra fat and the things that go along with that, such as prediabetes and higher blood pressure. Each of these is potentially modifiable, and many studies are ongoing to tell us the best ways to do that. If we take one example, cesarean delivery, there is some good news because the increase in C-sections seems to have leveled off in recent years. And what role should pediatricians be playing in reducing childhood obesity? Preventing childhood obesity takes more than health care services. It involves all sectors of society, from families to neighborhoods to policies, and medicine is one part of that mix. Pregnant women and infants see their health care providers more often than any time in the life course. We need to make their jobs easier by finding the best ways to embed behavior change strategies in everyday practice. As I was mentioning before, one promising aspect is using decision aids and practices with electronic medical records to provide reminders for testing, avenues for referrals, tailored materials for families. Another is to augment providers' efforts with personal or electronic coaches for behavior change. Thank you, Dr. Gilman.